guys, and welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day, and it's a fantastic day for an interview. And I have McCall Lawrence Bennett with me. McCall is uh, one of the many unsung heroes out there that I want to celebrate throughout the rest of 2020. Now, these unsung heroes should be celebrated every single day in our lives until we are dead. And the unsung heroes that I'm referring to are the loved ones that live with addicts. Because if you face it, chemical addiction really impacts at least one in three people. And conservative figures make it one in four. Okay, so that's 25% of the population. Now, each of these people will touch at least one significant other. Well, guess what? In reality, it's probably 20. 20 people are affected by the addict. And these are the people that are suffering. And even once the addict or alcoholic goes into recovery and changes, there is still that, that impact. So the lives of all the other people around him uh, will be affected one way or the other. And it, it, it can be very, very bad, or down in recovery, it can be a, a powerful catalyst to change. So a lot of things can happen. But yeah, I want to, to, to honor those people who are helping us to turn our lives around, to reduce the pain, and to make this, peop this, this life worthwhile living. I'm, I'm talking about the whys in many of us addicts. Certainly my wife is my why. My children are my why I need to get my shit together. So, McCall, it's lovely to have you on the show. And I'm honored and, and humbled that you made time and, and, and are honest about your own journey. I'm really honored to be here, um, except... I can't consider myself a hero. I'm part of a 12-step program called Al-Anon for the friends and families of alcoholics, as well as ACA for adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. And every time I speak at a meeting, I say I am a grateful Al-Anon. And really, I'm grateful that the people I love drinking bothered me because I wouldn't have taken the step towards recovery for myself if I hadn't been driven to my knees by the baffling, cunning, and powerful disease of alcoholism that's affected my life. And I am grateful that recovery can be as contagious as the disease. <laughs> Isn't it? It's beautiful. Contagious. That's a, a, the most a lovely word how you could actually use it because we like it or lump it, when, when alcoholics are in recovery and they really get their shit together, we change and we become, just by, the, by being honest about this transformation and showing the, the way we clean up ourselves, our lives, how we make uh, amends, how we change our lives, we become beacons of light for others in their storms. And... It is, a, it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful legacy that we alcoholics can leave by planting the seed and showing others that life can change. So this, this is definitely a fact. Having said that, before you become the lighthouse, unfortunately, you find yourself in the middle of the storm. And that was, unfortunately for you, at a very early stage, wasn't it? Yeah. When was your first Al-Anon meeting? I came home from school on October 6th. It was, I think, a Tuesday. Uh, and my mom wasn't home. And I put myself to bed and I woke up the next morning and she still wasn't there. And thankfully, my school was right behind my house. And I just walked to school and I told somebody... And by the end of the day, I was with some officers and I, I found out that my mom had gone to the hospital uh, because of overindulging in alcohol, I guess, and was going through some 
detox kind of DT experience. And they were putting her in rehabilitation from there. And she was a single mom and I am an only child. So it was just the two of us. And that very next day, that Wednesday, October 7th, 1981, I was about eight years old and I entered the rooms of Alateen. My mom stayed sober for a little while after that. And I spent a lot of times in the back of smoke-filled AA rooms. (laughs) And uh, I... I worked the steps as a child with a sponsor, but I still had a graduation date idea in mind that I was going to work the steps and then I'd be fine and my mom would be fine. And this was all, you know, it was grade school and I was ready to go to college. Oh, excellent. And um, yeah, I ended up in boarding school in eighth grade because my mom continually went back into the hospital. She has a drawer full of 24-hour sober chips. Uh, But, you know, for every time she's gone in, she's found recovery, even if it's a short stretch of time. And if there weren't the waves in my life, I don't know that I ever would have bothered learning how to surf and that is what my program of recovery gives me is that I can be content and even happy whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. And at this point in my life, I'm now 47. So it's been almost 40 years that I've been in and out of programs. Now I came back in about three and three and a half years ago and made a commitment. I say, I now work the program like it's a college class that I pay for. Like I take this shit seriously. I have notebooks. I go to a I go to Al-Anon Big Book Studies of the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book and the 12 and 12 from AA. You know, I've listened to Joe and Charlie do the st- the big book study a gazillion times. I've read new pair of glasses. Um, I have always had AA envy kind of because I have all the same isms that any alcoholic has. I just, my addiction is what comes out of my mouth, not what goes into it and other people. And that dependency upon other fallible human beings would have continued to be an issue for me, even if I didn't know anyone who used anything. My lack of connection to something greater than myself, my God-shaped hole, I'm not sure I would have ever sought to recognize or fill it if it hadn't been for a 12-step program. And that, well, that's exactly what I write about in in My Steps to Sobriety. Uh, It is so important to realize that the principles that are taught in Al-Anon, the principles that are taught in AA, the 12 steps are really a sensible kind of of approach that you would use if a friend comes to you with a failing restaurant and you have a restaurant where everything goes absolutely fine and and your house is full every night and in him there are a few tumbleweeds rolling through. And he comes to you and says, what the hell? What what do you do different than me? And, And this is the start of, of, of the 12 steps because he has recognized that there is seriously in trouble, step one, and he recognized that, that alone he can't do it, step two, and then he recognized that um, he needs to ask and, 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 and he, he realizes that there is someone out there that he can ask and he comes to me. That's already three steps done. Um, then the fourth step is that I pop across for a coffee and actually sit down and, and have a look what's going on in his restaurant. So I'm sitting down, looking at a menu, look around, see how the staff behaves, order a few bits from the menu, and then go behind the scenes and check it out. How, what's the mood in the kitchen? How clean is the, the fridge? All these kind of things. And if that all sounds familiar to you, well, that's actually the kitchen nightmares of Gordon Ramsay. 
God, my man, the F word. Yes. Love that show. Exactly, exactly. And I swear about as much as he does normally. Um, so it's good. So there's a lot of connections there. And so Alanon and, and, and the 12 steps, uh, they're all actually the same thing. So when, when Gordon Ramsay and me go into a kitchen and have a good look around, well, that's step four, doing an inventory, actually looking what's going on. And then you move on from there where you actually start implementing changes, creating healthy habits as far as you yourself are concerned. Um, or you look at the menu in the restaurant and say, well, no one would ever buy that. And why the hell do you have to keep that extra bit in the fridge there? Uh, forget it. So you throw out those things that don't suit and you maybe change things and bring in new things. And then you think, well, okay, we've got complete new setup now. We've given a nice clean in the front and we put new wallpaper up and no decorations. And well, now it's step, step eight and nine, we make amends. And because you have to now announce actually, guys, so you send flyers out, you, you put on Facebook uh, messages to say, hey, look, we went a bit through a rough time and dear customers, we, we feel a bit sorry for that. So these are the changes that we have made and we want to honor you and maybe apologize to you for the not so nice things that we that you have had recently by giving you 50% voucher off for your first meal, etc. So we're making amends. And then down the line, we do quality assurance, make sure that actually we're still doing the right thing. So it's 10 and 11 and then 12, is that my friend, the other restaurateur, is actually so good again. So we are both brimming in our in our business. And he says, look, this was really such a cool, cool journey. Thank you so much, Stefan, for helping me. But you know what? I create a group where other failing restaurateurs can come in and I now pass on the messages that we both have learned. And, you know, and that's step 12, where you give back. Hey, guys, that was the 12 steps in a nutshell. Now, can you imagine that this is actually probably quite a sensible way how to look at a failing business? Absolutely. And I think the only thing that you missed out on is in step 12, when your friend teaches someone else about how they improved their restaurant, they actually get a lot back from it because they'll go into someone else's restaurant and find out they're ordering bacon from this amazing place and it's half as expensive. So they improve their restaurant continually exactly. as they give back. Exactly. How cool is that? And that is it's the amazing. reason that I will not stop this show anytime soon. Okay. It is here 6.20 when we started that interview uh, in the morning. Yes, please. I would have liked to lie in a little bit longer. But hell, I will be damned if I was to. I'd rather have the sleep deprivation, but talk to gorgeous people like Nicole and just learn from her and discuss to the fat with her because there is so much I still have to learn. And that's years down the line. So that's beautiful. So that's, guys, this is an ongoing, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful journey. And we both invite you to join us. And it doesn't matter if you're an addict or an alcoholic. Well, then, of course, open arms. Uh, but more important, it, that's where, where, where McCall now comes in. All the people around the alcoholics, around the people, the, the, the people who... You know, I think we can even just take alcohol or drugs out of the equation. I don't think it requires any addict in a person's life to be suffering from being human, being a spiritual thing trapped in a skin sack on a 3D reality when that's not all we are. I mean, it just dreams. Consider dreams alone or hallucinations or anything. There's more stuff than I can touch and feel and see. Even if you just talk about x-rays or radio waves or microwaves, they're there just because I can't perceive them doesn't negate the fact that they're there. And in order to enter, as Bill W. called it, the fourth dimension, I'm not sure I would have gotten there on my own. Oh. And I don't think 
when I work step one, there's no, it's not about alcohol. It is, I am powerless over everything, everything that happens to me, every other person, every situation, every thing I pay for that doesn't get to my house from Amazon. I can't control it, but I can control me. I can't control my first thought. I always remember that I am not responsible for my first thought, but everything from there on, if I tune in, suit up and show up, whether it's 630 in the morning and I wanted to sleep in or it's not, <clears throat> to face every moment of now with an attitude of surprise me instead of why me or why them, yes. you know, blaming or shaming, it just doesn't, it doesn't benefit my life and it doesn't attract people who, who want to encourage. I, I, I just, the discomfort of sitting in the pity <laughs> was so miserable that it forced me to my knees to the point where I call myself a retread. I came back into this program at 40 some years old to work it with vim and vigor so that my life could explode into colors, not just not be black and white, but actually have beauty and joy that I want to wake up tomorrow and I want to connect to people, even if they're drastically, especially if they're drastically different from me, because that's where I learn. And for much of my life, I felt one of the words we hear in these rooms, terminally unique. I felt like I was dying. I was so unwanted, unloved, and alone. And I didn't believe that I could find contentment and happiness if other things didn't change, if other people, if other situations and it wasn't until I embraced my powerlessness that I was able to have the freedom of making small changes in myself and how I pictured things. I always say I stopped putting my nose against the cloud and telling everybody about the cloud that follows me. I backed up and I started talking about the silver linings that might be there, even if I don't see them. And it's why I call my higher power Waldo, as in where's Waldo, that Instead of saying F you to God, and that's my relationship, which is better than none, to find, to say thank you and then find a reason why. That that scavenger hunt of looking for the good and focusing on that, it doesn't mean I'm denying the pain and the negativity and the problems. It just means that if I face and focus on the potential good, that I have more energy and I give more energy to others. I'm able to be of service and show up and be in the moment instead of one foot in yesterday and one foot in tomorrow and I'm peeing on today. And I've peed on a lot of days, I say. Oh, what a beautiful picture. I will never look at you the same way again. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect, perfect, perfect uh, picture because that's what most of us do. They, they don't live in the moment. There is always the worry about something. There is, there is never the stopping and looking at the positive things. Take, for example, how many women can take a compliment? When you say, wow, you really look good today, then a few people say, oh, thank you very much. And many women I know say, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's wrong with me? There's a, Emma, Emma, what, what do you mean? And you think, what the hell? I just said you look really nice today. And it is that kind of a thing. The inability to accept a moment and accept the situation for what it is and see something positive in this situation. And it is such a powerful state of mind if you can enter that and if you can look at the rain and say yeah it rains cats and dogs I'm really really pleased that it rains because the garden and the, the farmers in our country need the rain um, so that's really really good cool let's put an umbrella up and let's get to work and um, so it's 
to see to be able to see the positive and not fall into the pity party. Why me? Oh, I'm going to be wet in the car. My car right. is going to be all wet inside. I hate it. Are you bastard? Why do you do that And that's to me? easy. That's easy to do. It does take more work to say thank you and then look for reasons for being grateful. Um, and it's real easy to bond with people in the poor me. You know, I love in AA rooms, I've heard, poor me, poor me, poor me another drink. Uh, yep, 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 yep. So true. Same yep. thing. If I sit on the pity pot for long enough, even after I stand up, there's a ring around my ass that still hurts, you know? And <laughs> so my method is keeping my head above my feet. If I keep, if I really focus on being in this moment, that anything that's already happened, doesn't it's not real right now. It could just be an illusion. For all I know, it's a dream I had, and tomorrow doesn't exist. You know, it's history or a mystery. But that if I keep my head above wherever my feet are planted now, it's amazing how my heart lines up. Like my thoughts are on my actions in this moment my emotions seem to fall in line somehow. And that is where I do have some control. And also, I think, you know, something you said a moment ago made me think about step 11. Huge epiphany for me as an adult contemplating step 11. For a long time, I swear, it said that I should pray for the understanding of his will and the power to carry that out. As an adult, when I realized it said nothing about understanding, that understanding was absolutely unimportant, that it was knowledge that I was supposed to be seeking, regardless of understanding, things started to click because that really is the basis of faith. If I understood God, Am I really having faith in, quote, God? And I don't, you know, I say a God-shaped hole, but in my, in my program, one of the things in our conference-approved literature talks about a light switch. I don't need to know how electricity works to turn on a light switch. And to trust the light's going to come on, it doesn't mean it always will. Maybe the bulb's burnt out, whatever. But I don't have to understand the workings of electricity to use it in my life. And that was a clincher for me to not be my own highest power because I wore the mantle of everyone's higher power for a long time. As an adult child, I have a hyper-vigilant predictive quality where I can walk into a room I can read everyone that I've never met and predict what's going to happen and suddenly it falls on my messiah shoulders to avoid crises and create harmony by myself and I mean just saying it out loud sounds ridiculous and yet for decades I lived like that with full conviction that it was in my wheelhouse to be able to do that and my responsibility to do it. And well, it's no surprise that, that we all who have been in such situations are acting like that and believing that because what has happened in those years when you were not like that, you and I have got a strong history of being not in control. And that was a very, very, very scary times for a child in an alcoholic family. The child never knows when he comes home from school, is the Third World War happening at home or is everything happy and he gets cuddles, etc. There's, there was, he has no idea, but he knows he, he needs to be very careful. Uh, he needs to keep his mouth shut. Uh, and I, in my book, I call it the silent generation. Now, with that, I don't refer to the people uh, born after the Second World War around that time, uh, where normally the term is used for, no, I, I mean it because the children have learned that they keep their mouth shut and just try to please everyone 
and become that that quiet uh, person who just doesn't say a word. And See, doesn't. I actually went the exact opposite. <laughs> I turned my volume up to 12 mm. to get attention, to distract from my mom, because if everyone saw how dysfunctional she was, it was easier for me to take the blame and the attention than it was to feel that everything was risky. Also, being a child and longing for, especially growing up, I think, without a a second parent around, that all my attention needed to come from my mom, that the 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 merry-go-round of sobriety and then falling back in and off the wagon, the instability and inconsistency made me feel like I needed to be so big to be seen or heard that I had to scream everything and make everything very dramatic. Mm. The problem is that pushes away healthy people. Absolutely. And so it only attracts other toxic people and reinforces that behavior instead of practicing the pause. Uh, one of the first things I learned in Alateen was to neither create nor prevent any crisis from naturally occurring. Huh. Nice one. Nice and one. That's, that requires pause. You have to consider if I just react and I'm a very fire, then ready aim kind of person, because I want to short circuit the problems. What I didn't realize is I cause more problems than I've short circuited. And it created a chasm between me and all other people because I was so focused on how I experienced the world that if somebody was happy, I couldn't connect to them. I was so much in, in our program, we call it the four M's, mothering, martyring, managing, and manipulating. And I was so attached to those roles for stability that I say it, fe- it felt like for decades of my life, I was treading water to keep my head above it so I wouldn't drown. I was in the middle of the ocean, just searching for shore, for direction so that I could swim, but I was always exhausted because I couldn't stop treading or I'd drowned. The day I chose to experiment with a power greater than myself, I can imagine God just being surface tension of water, just being nature. And as soon as I experimented just for one day, one hour, that I stopped treading water and that it wasn't black and white. If I stopped, I drowned. I might be able to lean back, stop looking for shore, put my face to the sun and float. Hmm. And while I, while I float, there's a current in water that why not ascribe that to God as well? That is taking me somewhere without any effort of my own. That while I'm recharging by just floating on my back, I'm actually moving across towards something that I don't need to see to get there. And that kind of mystical felt very scary to me. But just toying with it, even tongue in cheek and ascribing things to, quote, God, is just as effective as going to somebody going to church or reading scripture or the Torah or whatever. And it may, gives me a sense of connection and belonging that helps balance out that terminal unique feeling. You know, every time I would go pick up my kids at their elementary school, I felt very insecure. I live in Los Angeles, California, and people had nice cars. The only cars I saw were like Lexuses and Teslas. Even though half of my kids' school probably didn't even have cars, 
It's what my eyes saw. And I thought everyone was judging me and I have tattoos and I'm quirky and loud and assertive and they all are looking at me and thinking about me. And so I would read this statistic as I was pulling up to my kid's school and sitting in the pickup line. And it says, it is estimated that 43% of adults in the U.S., that 76 million people, have had a parent, child, sibling, or spouse who is or was an alcoholic or addict. By sheer numbers, if you think you're the only mom that you know that grew up with an alcoholic, just picture almost half of that school pickup line filled with moms and dads who grew up just like you did, McCall. And I would read that and it would give me a sense of belonging and connection that there was some intrinsic bond that I have with humanity that gave me permission to not limit who I am, to present myself vulnerably, mm-hmm. and to find overlap, as I said, kind of that Venn diagram overlap instead of focusing on the differences and the black and white as we've talked about. Where are the similarities? And this is such a powerful statistic, isn't it? Every other person you meet will have that experience. No one talks about it, or few people talk about it. Maybe I would say 5% uh, ballpark figure is my guesstimate of people who are in our shoes, uh, who have got not nice things happened to them in the past will speak open about it. It is still a taboo. It's still a matter of shame, guilt. There are all these just these these negative emotions that keep keep harassing us. And often enough they are they are our own constructs. They're our own own we are our own worst enemies when it comes to this kind of neck, 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 neck. And I think the key message when you guys listen here to this interview Michal and I strongly, strongly believe, and and we are not alone out there, that it is absolutely normal, justified by the figures. It is far more likely that there are so many more people out there who exactly have gone through the same shit or suffered in a similar way to you. And it is not, there is no need to feel ashamed. Yes, you might have done things that are not so nice. Certainly the person, any addict, any alcoholic who is worth the name will will have done actions that are not really so nice, okay? That might be lying, stealing, all kind of things. We are just, yeah, alcoholics are alcoholics, full stop. But... But, 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 for you out there, listeners, you are not alone. There is a reason that you listen to this to this podcast. There's a reason that you watch this YouTube video. So please listen to us. You are not alone. More importantly, there is help out there. Because there are others out there who were in the same shoes as you, but have actually started the journey a while ago. So they are well ahead of you in that journey of recovery, of self-love, of finding authenticity and finding the self-worth that makes your life so beautiful and unique. So the key is find these people. And uh, you could start far in far, far worse places than actually look around and see if there's an Al-Anon meeting anywhere close by. Because there's something very powerful uh, when it comes to actually seeing people in person. Now, there is, of course, this funny thing called COVID. It really puts a bit of a spanners in the work. Um, we are still lucky here in New Zealand because we had a government who didn't take no for an answer and just closed us down. So we Yeah, are rub it in. Lucky. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. We were, just prior to this interview, we had a bit of a, of a winching session here. Um, we had our own pity party talking about the, the America of today. 
but the reality is that COVID will change the things that we have been doing. So here we are talking about meetings and talking about going to a meeting that is not necessarily there anymore. But again, but just like this. every cloud has, I know, yeah, exactly. there is a silver lining. Yeah, I, I can whinge about COVID all day, but you know what I could spend more time doing is noticing the beautiful gifts of being shut in and isolated. Mm. You get so bored that creativity <laughs> has to come out in yes. some way. Yes. I'm making a podcast. It's nothing I would have done. I could focus on that I lost my job and I have to get a job. Or I can follow my intuition and say, you know what, I've got a little time. I have friends who have picked up guitars and taught themselves to play, made short films. And I have gotten to go to 12-step meetings all over the world. Uh, Last night at my home group, one of my closest friends from Ireland was with us at our meeting. I am the Al-Anon lead at an AA convention in a few weeks excellent. in Dubuque, Iowa, that you can attend, that oh, anybody excellent. could. I mean, that's, there's something magical oh, that excellent. somebody could be nervous about going to a, a meet, uh, walking into a face-to-face -face meeting. True, 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 true. Very good. And all of a sudden, they can just kind of creep in maybe they can keep their camera off and just listen in and <laughs> the options are limitless now correct correct now tell tell me so if i am now uh, a a left one and i'm really at the end of my tatters and i've i've looked on the internet and there's our interview and now they're thinking hmm, okay i have no idea where to start where would you recommend them to start how do they find a meeting there are many options. The easiest probably is to go to alanon.org. That's our uh, WSO, the World Service Office, that supports the program and each individual self-supporting autonomous group. They maintain a website with a search engine for meetings. And you can search for phone meetings. You can search for meetings on Facebook Messenger or free conference call app or Zoom or Discord. You can search by the day. You can search for adult children meetings, uh, LGBTQ, open meetings. You can be an alcoholic. One of the things we're taught in Al-Anon is to attend open AA meetings, to hear another side of this. Um. So, yeah, I would start with alanon.org. You can also, if you are a person-to-person -person kind of person, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me at waldolovesme at gmail.com. <laughs> and I can, I'll get you connected. I mean, <laughs> Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson basically had a save a drunk to stay sober program. It's the same for us, that it is by giving that I actually maintain and get back and grow. That the 12th step is, I mean, they're all very important, but the 12th step connects me to people in a way that I always felt was impossible. Hmm. So, yeah, it's limited. You can also just go on Google and or YouTube and search Al-Anon speakers there are podcasts. Mine is called Unboxing God. There's one called The Recovery Show that is phenomenal. That's from an Al-Anon perspective. There are books galore. There's so many options. Just for one day, experiment. Even if you don't think it would be helpful to you or this isn't your situation. What does it harm? You know? I'm not a Buddhist, but if somebody invites me to a Buddhist monastery for a day, I'm not going to pass it up. You know, that experimenting. <laughs> There's a line in one of our books. We have a daily reader called Courage to Change. And on March 26th, it starts, anything worth doing goes a slightly cockeyed version of the old saying. 
is worth doing badly. And it goes on to say, I choose to live my life not as a command performance, but as a series of experiments from which I learned to live better. And that gives me permission to live just for this moment. As the saying goes, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And I love that saying. I, uh, but if everything goes smooth, well, yeah, it's a bit of a boring day. Um, if something goes pear-shaped and I can feel a sudden urge to drink, I can feel a wave of anxiety washing over me, I feel me getting sad, that's the time when growth happens. That's the time when I can say, whoa, what does my body want to tell me here? Where did I burn the candle on both ends? What actually just has happened there? Okay, I'm surrounded by assholes. Fair call. Today, that is the fact. Or, actually, these people are all right. There's something seriously wrong in me today. And let's have a look at that. So one way or the other, it's an experiment. You don't know. You have never lived that second. You have never been in that minute. So it is the, the kind of be open to the present, analyze it, stop for a moment, press the pause button before you fly off the handle and think, are oh, you, stop, look what's going on. Hmm, okay. So you haven't drunken, you haven't had any food this morning, you've been working 12 Alt. hours straight, Halt. exactly, you know it Hungry, well. angry, lonely, tired. It's the first thing my sponsor asks me Absolute. when I'm upset. Exactly, exactly so, right. I'm a little extra. I don't just have one sponsor. I have a Jedi Council. <laughs> I have a spirit sponsor. Excellent. I have a service sponsor, etc. And that way I collect a wealth of perspectives and tools. Mm. And someone's always available. Um, so one of my sponsors, one of my Jedis says, it's a million dollar program. We get one penny at a time. And she also says, for every year I've been in Al-Anon, I get one second pause. And sometimes I don't use my 24 seconds very well. But that it is exactly in the pause, not the knee-jerk reaction, where conscious choice comes into play. All right. Oh, it's beautiful. Exactly. And because that's what it's all about. It's our life is a series of choices. Now, sometimes you make really crappy choices, and my life is full of them. But... Right now, right now, I've got a choice. Once that interview is finished, before I go to work, I have the choice. Do I want to eat some breakfast quickly? Yes, there's not much time, but I, I can actually make some porridge quickly. And, or I run just to work. And what will be better for me? So there you go. That is one choice, one tiny choice. I have the choice in a moment to drink a big glass of water. I've got the choice at the moment when I arrive at work, I could run straight in or I could look up and say, that's actually a beautiful sun out there. Just give that five seconds of clarity, sanity, whatever you want to call it. It's your micro break, your time for yourself, where you treat yourself to five seconds calm. These are all choices. And you know what helps me remember that and gives me grace in that area? I think it's actually an Abraham Lincoln quote, maybe, but it's also in our literature that says, if something's important, chances are it's not also urgent. And if it's urgent, chances are it's not that important. Uh -huh. <laughs> there is that. that and, unless, really of course, you're helps. an anesthetist and look after the life of others. Well, I was going to say, if there's blood or fire, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, there's, there's, out yeah. the Some of our jobs, unfortunately, that doesn't work so well. But in principle, <laughs> I subscribe to that notion. You're quite right. How often is the crisis really a crisis of someone else and has bugger all to do with you? You know, not my circus, not my monkeys. That saying has, is, has so much truth just because someone else wants to transfer their negative emotions and their, their, their crisis, which often enough is due to lack of their preparedness and lack of their managing skills of their life. Well, that's their problem. 
okay yes it is if it immediately impacts on you fair enough do something but do something to protect you and if you're in a really good position and you can actually help fair call fair call and do it I mean, that's what we what we do we 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 help others because we're good people yeah but there's a difference between me coming at something thinking that i'm helping someone mm. and me being of service to someone mm. Mm. the idea of helping someone has a judgment value built into it for me that that i have something to give them in some way that okay. they don't have that if I approach it, first of all, I have to make decisions on what I choose to say yes to based on, am I doing this for free and for fun? Hmm. Because as an Alanonic myself, pointing fingers and assigning blame to others is so easy for me and including to myself and the shame that I'll take on that isn't mine to wear that if I only do things for free and for fun. There aren't resentments waiting to happen. You know, I have really clung to the idea that expectations are premeditated resentments. And if I allow myself expectations of anything, which is why I pray, surprise me. Just every minute, I don't, Another thing I've learned from another one of my Jedis is that we don't grow in our comfort zone. As you were saying earlier, it is yeah. only in discomfort that we make changes, so that we enter the chrysalis to be able to grow wings. And if we pick at that chrysalis or the budding flower to try to encourage it, it's like helping an egg hatch that force from the inside is required to enable that chick to live or that flower to blossom or that butterfly's wings to unfold like they're supposed to. Mm. If I try to force my timing and my control on growth of anybody else, mm. that I'm really harming them. Yeah. There is a wonderful published letter from an alcoholic to the ones who love them, basically saying, Give me the dignity to fall on my face so that I'll get up on my own. Because if you help me up, all I can do is rely on you. I never take any dignity and self-worth from my choices and my actions. You just become a crutch. And then I blame you when it doesn't work. <laughs> Which is beautiful because what you're describing is codependency. So if you guys out there ever wondered what that word actually means, just wind back the last three minutes of this interview. That is just what we've described. That is, it is you as an alcoholic, you need to find yourself worth again. And that is impossible if you always get the help. There's nothing wrong to say here is, may I suggest you try that but that implies that the alcohol has to try, uh, alcoholic has to try, that he has to do the work. And it's by doing the work that the miracles happen. Because each and every trauma, each and every reason why we drink needs to be explored. And it is, it is, it is hard work and it's, it's often brutal work, but it's a necessary work. And again, whilst I was, I was talking from the, the perspective of an alcoholic, that is actually relatively meaningless. The alcohol, yes, it is, is a hook for us to start to work on ourselves, but you don't need the alcohol or being a druggie or being whatever label you put on. There is so much shit happening in our lives, so many disappointments, resentment, anger, all these kind of external factors, trauma, situations where we just shake our heads and say, oh, why me? All that kind of stuff. There is the trauma there. And, and none of us have learned how to deal with that. And that's, that's where your life, that's really the, your duty, your, your, your reason for being, to learn to make sense of things to learn why things 
are happening and what it means to you, how you can grow from it, how you can change, how you let it transform you into a better being. It's I'm sure you've heard the saying, what if this is happening for you, mm. not to you? Mm. And again, it's like, instead of saying fuck you to God, mm. saying thank you before you know you're thankful for anything. It's that almost living as if with the expectation of good instead of dismal yeah. outlooks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really changes how I experience the world. It gives me a joy and a bliss instead of an anger and a depression. No, so true, Michael. So true. And there's so much out there. And I think it is hopefully, hopefully this interview, we have planted the seeds in your, your people's minds to say, whoa, these guys were talking actually about quite some profound, profound facts. And with the conviction that maybe other people just find spooky. Obviously, these two have had insights and revelations in their own lives that change them. And we invite you to come onto this journey as well. We want you to come to the crossroads where you start making changes in your life and suddenly actually explore the trauma and explore those those hard times in your life and either deal with them and then put them to bed or actually accept that whatever has happened it has happened there's nothing you can do about it but it is time to move on and it is it is such a beautiful journey and we all could do with that i keep saying i i want every 16 year old to go for a month into rehab uh, regardless of who they are, what they are. It does, I don't care that you come from the best family in town or, or from the worst family. I don't give a toss. Just go to rehab and actually learn the techniques. Get introduced to a 12-step program. Get introduced to a program of any systematic approach. It doesn't need to be 12 steps. Well, but be- there's also programs for anything. I mean, there are nuanced 12-step mm-hmm. groups whether it's Emotions Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous or Under Earners Anonymous or Overspenders Anonymous. It doesn't matter. They're all based on the same process. I mean, really, it's based on the Oxford groups or steps. It's where it all comes from. I can't. Maybe something else can. And I think I'll let them. <laughs> Just as an experiment for one day. Exactly. You don't have to, you don't have to move to China to visit China, you know, <laughs> and bringing back Bill Wilson's concept of rocketing into the fourth dimension. You can't stay somewhere without doing something to stay there. Even going to China, you have to get a visa in your passport. You have to renew your visa to stay in China. I have to do that work. But sometimes the hardest work for me is doing nothing, is taking my hands off, is stopping my feet from treading water instinctively because I've told myself I have to. This year in 2020, I've done away with shoulds, oughtas, musts, have tos for myself and for other people. And it's taken nine months to really see a change. The first few months, I felt like I could barely even talk because my kids and my husband were constantly saying, oh, you just did it again. You just, I'd walk by my daughter looking at something. I'd be like, oh, you should learn how to make that. And she'd look up and go, should? I did it again. I could, I can't tell you how often I grabbed to that trope without even realizing it. And just the awareness in my program, we also have the three A's, awareness, acceptance, and then action. If I take an action before I'm even in a place of acceptance, it's not an action, it's a reaction. Let's be real. And my reactions aren't very healthy. (laughs) (laughs) That makes two of us. (laughs) Are there many people who are though? Like, is there really... A living human being who's healthy? <laughs> no, 
<laughs> Not that I have met, okay? And it's those people who try to pretend that everything is all right. Now, they scare me. They are, because these are the people who have no idea um, if they truly believe that or uh, who truly uh, have got such a mask up and really believe that I can smell a bullshitter from a mile away. So it is, nah, no, 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 no. As I said, give me someone who's gone through the, the war, who's gone through through the trauma. And is well, I think anybody who's not balanced, if there's not both positives and negatives in every moment of your life, so are you really living in the moment? Nope, nope. That's definitely true. Michael, I'm so grateful. We spent an hour here talking. It's beautiful because you're, we, we both have gained very similar insights and we both have become passionate advocates of transformation, of finding self-worth, finding self-love and getting rid of, of, you can't get rid of negative emotions, that's wrong. You can manage negative emotions. You can accept them for the messages that your body is trying to send you. Uh, you it, they allow you to be more insightful in what is really happening around you and inside of you. And that's that's such beautiful, beautiful, uh, a beautiful state of mind that that we two have entered. So, guys out there, thank you so much for for checking in today, for listening to that. And there is definitely help out there. There are people out there who are further down the, the, the line, further down the, the path, the journey, who can guide you because it's a jungle out there. It's a jungle in there, that's for sure. And so sometimes you need a guide and someone who's listening to you, what you're saying, someone who's listening to you, what you're not saying. And so there are so many things out there. You're not alone. This journey is too important because it's your life. It's your, it's your every second counts. Only a certain number of seconds we have. So make every second count and do that by mindfulness. Do that via, via accepting the things you cannot change. <laughs> and, you know, there is a reason that we have all these 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 gems of words that we use in, in AA and Al-Anon, et cetera. Uh, they're these little, these little beautiful, sparkling uh, bits of information where you think, hmm, actually. And they, they are not just stupid memes of sorts. They're actually very, very true, uh, poignant truths that we use to remind ourselves every day to keep on the path that we have chosen, the path of sobriety, the path, more importantly, of living a life so wonderful that yesterday becomes jealous of today. So that is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. And I invite you all, come along. This is, this is quite a cool journey. So I would also say to anyone who's listening who has been through AA, even if you're sober and it's not something you struggle with, I have heard from a lot of alcoholics in recovery that once they've found stability in sobriety, they've joined Al-Anon and they are called double winners. I actually go to a double winner meeting every Sunday night because AA teaches you not to depend upon alcohol. Al-Anon teaches you to heal relationships, not just with yourself and your relationship to to a drug or alcohol, but with parents and coworkers and authority. Nice. Big nice. time. Nice. Oh, brilliant. Oh, McCall, I'm so, so, so grateful uh, for your input today. It was lovely, lovely to bounce the ball around. Um, I'm, I was honored and humbled to have you on my show. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, if there is one tip that you want to leave our viewers and listeners with, what would that tip be? Instead of setting to-dos for yourself, set intentions and just experiment and see what happens. That making a mistake isn't a problem if you learn from it. If you take something from it and grow from it, it actually can be a gift. The challenges and the discomfort 
are where I've grown the most. Beautiful, beautiful. I could not agree more. <laughs> and I hope you get breakfast before you head to work. <laughs> oh, I will make sure, Dad. That's why I thought it might be on the run. But hey, hey, it is at least I look after myself. And that's something I haven't done for a very, very long time in my life. So it is, it is, and it is a journey. We need to do it every single day. You don't just go once to the gym and expect to be healthy. <laughs> Two so steps forward, one step back, and it's <laughs> exactly. still progress. As long as I'm facing the right direction, <laughs> exactly. it's progress. Exactly. Michael, thank you so much for being on my show. And you Lots guys out there, and you guys out there, you look after yourself and make this world a, uh, just a little bit better. One choice after the other. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>